This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Well, the Southern Heritage Trust regular monthly visions for Dunedin talks continue with uh, the June speaker being Sean Brosnan, curator at uh, Toitu Otago Settlers Museum. He's going to be speaking, well, about Dunedin, of course. And, of course, you can't understand or project to the future without understanding the past. I suppose that's the theme for Sean's talk. You can talk more about that now. Morena, lovely to have you with us, Sean. Morning there, Jeff. Great to be here. Looking back, making and remaking Dunedin is the subject of your talk on Wednesday evening uh, at the Dunedin City Library as part of this series. Um, fair to say that uh, your strength is the understanding our city's past and that's what you want to talk about on Wednesday night? Yeah, that's right. So I'm kind of fascinated by the way in which the city was created, you know. Um, I don't think people appreciate quite as much today what prodigious energy is involved in developing a city like Dunedin and the layers that are involved in that in this particular case. So even though our history is, you know, not that old, 160-something plus years, in that period, Dunedin has been made and then remade or remade again in a number of places, you know, and those layers are what I want to dig down through right back to the beginning point. And I'm doing it through photographs because we've got a fantastic collection of historic photographs at Toy Town and I'm going to exploit that resource. So when we talk about uh, remaking Dunedin and those various layers, are there, you know, what are the catalysts for those various shifts and changes along the way? Well, obviously, to begin with, when the pioneers arrived here, they face a pretty much a primeval landscape, and they want to create something like they've come from in, in Scotland, particularly, so New Edinburgh, you know, Dunedin, New Edinburgh. So they begin to make very primitive houses and then some pretty basic public buildings. And the most important public building in Pioneer Dunedin was the church slash school. It doubled us both. And that was a pretty humble little building. Yeah, we can see it in the photographs, and we know it had to expand over time, but... If that's the best they had to begin with, you know, it shows what a really basic level village it was to start off with. But if you jump forward just, you know, 12 years or so to the gold rushes of the 1860s, suddenly you have this massive explosion in buildings. So all those buildings which had developed from the sort of wattle and daub furries, which were the first, you know, houses, had been replaced by wooden cottages as you get tradesmen come in and you have sawyers and begin to have those raw materials and the the people who can make things a bit more, you know, a bit more uh, impressive. But the shops are still very primitive and the streets, of course, are just, you know, mud tracks. But with the gold rush impact, all of a sudden you have massive burst of building and construction and, and development of, you know, impressive public works like making footpaths gas street lighting, all those sorts of things. So you have a new layer appears, and it's quite dramatic. You can see it in the photographs from one year, 1861 to 62 to 63. Along Princess Street, there's just a surge of new constructions going up, stone buildings, you know, brick buildings, impressive sort of double-storey, triple-storey structures. And you jump ahead to the 1870s, well, <laughs> things really take off then. And a lot of those 1860s buildings are replaced by another layer of even more impressive buildings. And in the 1880s, we have the same thing. So we get some very impressive architecture developed in Dunedin, which we still live with today in some cases. Along the way, the expectations of Dunedin citizens as to what what infrastructure will be in place, what services will be in place for them, what uh, other aspects of the city might attract 
people other than just work um, would change the the face of a city too, right? Recreational activity and so forth. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's pretty late in the day before you get a lot of amenity development. It's a kind of a luxury item. So if you think, for instance, about the Queen's Gardens, you know, we, we see it today as quite a beautiful sort of space, but for a long time that was a very rump area. It had been set aside as a reserve and it had, of course, been reclaimed from the sea. But it was just a rubbish tip for a long time. It wasn't until the 1889-90 exhibition on a cusp of that, and they knew that the railway station was there at that point, and they said all the people that were arriving to need for this great big event they'd put on were going to arrive there. And what were they going to see when they came out of the station? This rough, scrappy sort of area. So, you know, that was developed into an amenity at that point. So, you know, it's kind of a luxury point there. You know, and things like the museum and public library, they sort of come pretty late in the piece as well. But, you know, to begin with, it's roads and footpaths. And if you look at what some of our pioneer ancestors were dealing with as they negotiated their way around Prince's Street or Dowling Street or in those sort of really central areas, goodness me, the photographs show it quite well, just what a muddy, messy tortuous sort of existence they must have lived in those days as people were exploring a little bit further afield and they would have been looking at what resources were available to them locally to be able to create buildings and so forth they wouldn't necessarily have known what might have been possible when they first settled in terms of construction of major works so it would have been a case of discovering what was in the region as well well absolutely and sort of stone resources from quarries are part of that i mean if you look at reverend thomas burns's diary in the very first year of settlement he's experimenting with local stones and you know testing their building capacities and you know they found that some local stones weren't really much chop it wasn't until 1865 that they discovered the use of omaru stone and the first building that, that used that extensively was the great um, new post office, which became later called the Exchange Building. That was the first building in New Zealand to use Omaru stone, and also that they could cut it easily mechanically, which made for a you know, great advance in, in stone construction. When you talk about the layers, I imagine feeding into that also, that kind of strata would be the the very essence of the purpose of the, of, of the city uh, at, very, at various times. The, that will have changed too. With the gold rush passing, you're turning to another way of living and sustaining the city through different resources and different activities. Well, you get that whole northward movement, of course, because the original plan by Kettle was very clear. You know, it's centred around the octagon. But when the settlers actually arrived they defaulted to the Maori landing place at the Toitu stream and so that's where the, the first village began around there and the octagon was well to the north of that. They had that huge lump of Bell Hill on the road so it was impractical to expand northwards until that was dealt to and it, it, that happened in the 1860s and they put this very narrow cutting through Bell Hill that opened up access to the octagon in the north and then of course the massive project through the 1860s which was the subject of last month's talk about the levelling of Bell Hill and then we had this whole northward progression of Dunedin and you know the Wall Street Malls all part of that the excavations there found that primitive development pre the 1860s and then a substantial beginning of you know commercial and industrial and uh, domestic developments up there as well. How much of your talk will talk about the people, the leaders that were guiding Dunedin through these various changes? Uh, not much at all. I'm not really going to be focused too much on people. I'm really going to be focused on the landscapes. And we can see, I'll be talking about you know the, the buildings and who they're associated with to a certain extent, but it's really a visual um, guide. I'm, I'm really going to use those photographs and just sort of talk to those. 
and show these amazing sequences because we, we're lucky to have a number of images of similar perspectives but over time so you can see absolutely dramatically the development from really rumpty old Princess Street at the beginning of the 1860s through these successive cycles of development until you get these absolutely stunning streetscapes by the uh, end of the 19th century. Where do you source your images for a talk like this and are they readily accessible to others at other times? Well, I, I'm, I'm basing mine entirely on our own collection, and it's a marvellous collection. It's not a huge collection. It's not, nothing like as big as the Hawkins collection, for instance, but it's a, like a little glittering jewel box. It's got some stunning stuff in it. Uh, and that isn't easily accessible to people at this stage, but we have digitised much of it, and you know, progressively over the years to come, we will work out better ways to making that available in the way that we've done with our portrait collection, which we digitised before the subject collection, and which is very easily accessible to people now. Uh, at the museum. The same will be true of the subject collection in the future. Not quite so much now, so I just want to tempt down any, you know, I can use this stuff and we do deploy it fully in our um, exhibition spaces, but it's not quite yet easily accessible, but it will be in the future. When you talk about layers, when you talk about strata, it's kind of, it's it gives the feel of a kind of an archaeological dig in some ways. And, and you know, when you look at uh, history, these layers are continuing to be added to. Do you expect, and is it a natural thing for cities, even well-established cities like ours now, to continue to go through those changes? And and you know, in two hundred years' time, will will there be still strata for people to look at and examine? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. And you know, the input of our archaeologists locally has been pretty profound in the last few years because there's been change in legislation now where any pre-1900 building that's demolished, they have to have an archaeological investigation. Of course, we had the Wall Street one, we had the Farmer's Site, Chinese Gardens, all sorts of ones sprinkled around the city. And the fruits of those investigations really opening up for us some really detailed understanding of those layers from the colonial period, and that will be true in the future. And if you think about a space, for instance, like the Dowling Street car park, you know, which is where that original school church building was, and which was, you know, fundamentally central to the experience of the pioneers. And for many years now, since 1969, when they demolished those grand buildings that were along there, that's been a big, empty, gaping tooth in the streetscape. You know, used as a car park, practically utilitarian, but very ugly. And now it's going to be redeveloped as the ACC headquarters. So there's going to be a big building go up there again, and it'll recomplete that streetscape. Let's hope in a beautiful way. I'm not quite so optimistic about that, to be honest. I don't think architects these days really produce much akin to the beauty of their 19th century predecessors. But nonetheless, it's going to be interesting to see a new layer that will be established in that critical area. It's going to be a really engrossing talk. Looking back, making and remaking Dunedin, Sean Brosnan will be speaking on Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock. The talk gets underway. It's preceded by the Southern Heritage Trust's AGM as well, I understand. So you can head along there uh, from about 20 to 6, light refreshments served. And these uh, talks, as always, presented absolutely free of charge. Fascinating series, always very popular. Uh, at our Dunedin Public Library, of course, on uh, on Wednesday evening. Sean, thanks for taking some time to pop in and seeing us here on ORFM just to give us a little bit of a preview of what to expect on Wednesday evening. Thanks very much, Jeff. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.